0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 91 of the Neuro Experience Podcast. I'm Louisa Nicola, and I am your host. Today, sitting across from me is Wendy Suzuki. She's here to talk to us about lasting memory, the brain, and neuroplasticity. Let's get into it. Dr. Wendy A. Suzuki is a Professor of Neuroscience and Psychology in the Center for Neuroscience at New York University. Her major research interest continues to be brain plasticity. She's best known for her extensive work studying areas in the brain critical for our ability to form and retain new long-term memories. More recently, her work has focused on understanding how aerobic exercise can be used to improve learning, memory, and higher cognitive abilities in humans. Wendy, welcome to the Neuro Experience Podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Exciting to be here.
0: Look, do you get this a lot? I am a major fan. Oh, thank you. Thank um, you. <laughs> I'm so excited. I read your book and I had to reach out to you. And uh-huh. you know, coming from Australia, it's always been my dream to actually talk to somebody from NYU. Oh. I know. Really? Yeah. I was like, NYU, this is amazing. So I'm so excited that you're here in my presence and here on the podcast. Um, I'd like you to give a brief background on who you are just so everyone can understand. But before we do, I've got to ask Mm -hmm. you one question. Okay. Yeah. How do you start your morning?
1: How do I start my morning? Well, I have a very set pattern. So I wake up. And I do about half an hour or forty five minute tea meditation. So this was taught to me by a monk, um, a monk who is a he goes around the world teaching tea meditation. And I was lucky enough to learn this from him. And it's uh, basically combining open monitoring meditation. You focus on your breath, focus on how your body feels, but combining that with the ritual of brewing, and drinking really good tea.
0: Mm. And for
1: me, I tried every sort of meditation. I tried guided meditation. I tried to go to classes. And it never really stuck until I found this thing where I could add this ritual to it. And every single morning, even Mm. when I'm on the road, I bring my little nice... Tea bags, and I do it in the morning, and I start with that, and then I do half an hour to forty minutes of cardio workout, and then mm-hmm. I'm ready to start my day.
0: Now, l- let's just ask: Is that tea meditation? Does that stand for TM? Is that like transcendental? No, it's no. Tea, T-E-A, just T-E-A, The drink. I, oh, tea, medita- tea okay, meditation. Okay, that's why you're like okay, great. Yes,
1: yeah. Brewing of. Wow. Tea. So you boil the water and you wait for it to get to the right temperature and you pour it in the in the teapot. I have a beautiful teapot collection by the way because of this. <laughs> and um and I also have tasted so many different kinds of tea now that I started. Mm. Really I literally I feel like I've tasted T- tasted all the tea from China and all the different varieties. And I've learned about temperature and seeping time and steeping strategy and wow. things like that, which is uh, really fun. It's kind of like my hobby now.
0: Oh, but, I love that. Yeah,
1: I start my day with that.
0: Amazing. Well, would you like to give us a quick rundown on who you are, yeah. You know, a bit about your research sure. and what you're doing now?
1: Okay. So I am a professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University. I'm also um, an author. Uh, I have one book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life life. And my second book, Good Anxiety, Bad Anxiety, is coming up mm-hmm. uh, at, the, uh, at the end of the year. And um, I am fascinated with the brain mm-hmm. and particularly what can change the brain to make it work better. And I have focused on exercise. We've also done studies in my lab on the effects of meditation on the brain. Mm-hmm. And um, I am just fascinated with and, and trying to make this my life purpose of trying to find that optimum exercise prescription that will optimize my brain function today and optimally protect my brain in the future from aging and neurodegenerative disease states.
0: You know that's really interesting because when you talk about exercise there's so many things out there that we could be listening to, you know, do we yeah. do weights, do we do 20 minutes and I know you're probably right. going to speak about BDNF mm-hmm. and which we know a lot about but yeah. What, so, what are, what are your findings? What's, what, do, what do we know so far that's good for us? Um,
1: yes, yeah. So we know the most about aerobic activity. Simply getting your heart rate up is mm. very good for your brain. Now and then people say, "Oh gosh, you know, I do weight training. How come? How come yeah. the weight training isn't good?" And what I say is that I always emphasize aerobic activity because all of the studies have focused on that. And really for the weight training, there haven't quite been enough studies for us to say yes or no. What is, is that really good, really bad? Have we found the right prescription? So that question is still open. Do I use it in my training? Absolutely. I think it's critical to do a combination of cardio and weights and, and strength training. So um, what we know is aerobic activity has the most kind of science behind it. Mm. Uh, there are immediate, immediate effects of doing an aerobic workout. Uh, we know that aerobic activity can stimulate the release, not only of BDNF, which is a, a, um, a growth factor critical for the long-term positive changes that you see, but there are immediate effects on the release of neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, endorphins, and enkephalins, which are uh, kind of neurohormones that are all, that basically all make you feel good. That mm. is why uh, after whatever you're doing, a boxing workout or whatever aerobic workout you're doing, you feel good after yeah. it. There's energy. Yeah. There's there's a, a heightened good mood and a tamped down bad uh, uh, bad energy that, that happens. And that is specifically because of the this change of neurotransmitters.
0: See, I love that you said that, the changing neurotransmitters, because what I'm trying to get at, and I, and I know you are too, is yeah. not... Not, don't just exercise to you know because you think you're going to look good, or yeah. don't just do it because you think okay we have to for heart health. It's about how can we build a bigger, stronger brain so yes. we can fight things like depression, anxiety, right. Right. Um, basically anything. Yeah. So what made you so fascinated in, in the brain?
1: Yeah, so I. Um I have a very specific story about why I became a neuroscientist. Mm. So this happened the very first day of my freshman year at UC Berkeley, where I was an undergraduate. And I signed up for one of these freshman seminars, which is a small class with a full professor talking about their specialty. And the title that intrigued me was The Brain and Its Potential. Mm. It happened to be taught by, I did not know at the time, I was just a little freshman, but by a, rural, a world-renowned neuroscientist and, and kind of also world-renowned teacher, uh, Marianne Diamond. And mm. um, she welcomed us to class, and she did something that remains with me to this day. She had a flowered pink hat box. On the desk in front of her, and um, as she was reminding us that the brain is literally the most complex structure known to humankind, there's nothing more complex than the human brain. She slowly and dramatically opened the lid of that hat box, and with her gloved hands, she pulled out a real preserved human brain oh from her god. hat box. Which, I mean, all of us were oh my god, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out. <laughs> uh, because. It's, it's it's awe-inspiring to actually see a real human brain. I had never seen one. Nobody else in, in that class, uh, the students, had seen one. And um, it wasn't that that made me want to become a neuroscientist. It was the studies that she told us about after she showed us the brain, the studies that she had done in the 1960s that showed that if you raise rats in a particular kind of environment, she called it an enriched environment. I look back and I call it the Disney World of Rat Cages. She basically made a rat cage that is like Disney World. Lots of toys, they change every day. Uh, big space, lots of other rats to play with. And she let the rats live there for three months and she compared the brains of those rats to rats that were raised in what she called an impoverished environment, which was as much smaller space, maybe one other rat, no toys. Mm-hmm. Now, if the brain, if the adult brain, these were adult rats, the adult brain couldn't change at all, which was the idea at the time, that was clearly what, how it worked, because that's what they all believed, um, then the two brains, there would be no no difference at all. But when she examined those brains, she showed that the outer covering of the brain, called the cortex, we have cortex, cortices too, it was actually thicker. She was able to show an anatomical change in particular brain areas like visual areas and motor areas and somatosensory areas that you might imagine are, were more stimulated in the Disney world of rat cages than in the uh, impoverished environment. And that was the first demonstration that the adult brain could change in a positive way in response to the environment. And that's why I wanted to study the brain.
0: Wow, that's unbelievable. I've actually shaped your entire Uh, the way you teach as well. Yes, absolutely. So, okay. So, from that, that's when you, you know, we talk a lot about neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to rewire itself. So, is this where this all comes in? And through neuroplasticity, we can grow. a thicker cortex, yes. gray matter, etc. Can you yes. talk to us a bit about what neuroplasticity is and yes.
1: how we can mm-hmm. benefit from it? Yeah, yeah. So neuroplasticity is the capacity of our brain and the individual cells in our brain, the neurons uh, and the glia, but mainly we talk about the neurons, um, to... Change and grow, either increase their uh, uh, number of synapses, which are the connections between individual neurons, or sometimes decrease. Plasticity is not all good. You can yeah. have negative plasticity. So, for example, the brain changes in a brain that is um, exposed to addiction, mm. for example, and some part of those brains grow. Uh, the The brain areas that crave <laughs> the, the uh, abuse of s- substance are enriched, but other areas uh, um, shrink in size.
0: I was yeah. going to... Sorry. Is yeah. Is that the same as thoughts? You know, if we continue down a negative thought pattern, can it change our... Can we rewire our brain, just fire our thoughts?
1: Yes. I yes. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence that uh, uh, positive affirmations and mm-hmm. positive kinds of thoughts uh, uh, can shift our thoughts and behaviors in certain ways. And certainly, everybody that has experienced even everyday anxiety mm. knows that those negative thoughts can quickly kind of pull you down this drain of, oh, you know, life is just terrible, and mm. I just don't see anything good anymore, and this is this is awful, uh, and it's a very powerful. Um, it's a powerful negative effect. Now, if you ask me, so tell me what the anatomical change is, we don't know what mm-hmm. that is, but the thoughts uh can change and good thoughts tend to, you know, attract other good thoughts and lead to particular behaviors that tend to be okay. more positive and and productive and negative thoughts also attract other negative thoughts that yeah. do not lead to those same positive kind of actions.
0: So when it comes to neuroplasticity, if we, you know, if we're just the average person, we work a nine to five, but what we really want to focus on is our um, is just getting better at running or maybe even um, fix our, our health in general. Yeah. How would we use the science of neuroplasticity to help us in that
1: aspect? Yeah. So this is where I like to advocate self-experimentation. So I just told you... Uh, um, a fact about what exercise does. Mm. Exercise stimulates the release of dopamine and um, serotonin, and uh, uh, in clinical studies have shown t- to have an immediate positive effect. So now your personal experiment is how does that work for me? What is that workout that makes me feel the best? Mm-hmm. Now, you might go to cardio boot camp and kill yourself, and at the end, you're like, oh, actually, I don't I feel it. so good. Mm what is that workout that makes you feel good? Is it uh, um, going at a medium intensity, but for longer? Is it just a short, you know, intense workout? And that can be very different for individual people. And for those of you that are not in a regular workout, it could be a good power walk, just mm-hmm. a short, good power walk that gets those um, um, endorphins flowing. Because sedentary people can't. <laughs> the great thing about starting a workout program when you're, you've been sedentary is that it takes much less to get you to an aerobic level. Whereas people that have been exercising a lot, it takes a, a lot more effort to get you up to an aerobic level. So you guys that are you know just starting, you know you have this advantage. A good power walk can be an aerobic a workout for you, whereas for a triathlete it would not be aerobic. So take advantage of that and put that in your self experimentation to ask yourself, you know, what really makes me feel good. Go in with that intention to figure out: was this making me feel feel better than last week's workout, or which one is it? And that's a very valuable personal piece of information for you. Do you think
0: that you can look at neuroplasticity when it comes to anxiety? Because I know you, you mentioned earlier yeah. you're bringing out a book, mm-hmm. which is the good and bad um, yeah. of anxiety. Yeah. So uh, can we look at neuroplasticity to overcome anxiety?
1: Absolutely. Um, uh, A lot of that book focuses on um, mindset. Mm -hmm. How do you use and shift your mindset to take advantage of... Uh, the positive effects of, and the positive aspects of anxiety. And usually when they say, I say that, people say, what? There's something yeah. positive? What, what is positive about anxiety? And um, uh, let me give you one example. Yeah. So uh, I've talked to so many lawyers, this happens with lawyers, and, so, and they say, you know what? anxiety is what makes me a great lawyer because what I do is I sit in my office and I worry about all the things that could, I could be sued for or my client could be sued for, and I go and I check them all off and I make sure that this is covered, that is covered. But that running list of possibilities mm. is actually what they need to be a good lawyer to make sure that they've covered all those possibilities. And that can work whether you're a lawyer, mm. or whether you are a neuroscientist, or whether you are a podcaster, yeah. uh, taking care of all all the things, so all those negative thoughts, yeah. yes, they're worries, but can you use them to your advantage? But
0: would you call that anxiety? Because you know, mm-hmm. the, you, you know, some people, I think there's a a, a big misconception about uh-huh. what anxiety is. Because I don't, you know, people say, oh, I've got anxiety because I'm waiting for this, and it's like, is that actually anxiety, yeah. or is yeah. breathing in a bag and hyperventilating mm-hmm. an anxiety yeah. attack? Like, yeah. So, Define anxiety for yeah,
1: us. that's a great question, and I should have started out with yeah. <laughs> a definition that my book, uh, Good Anxiety, Bad Anxiety, addresses what I call everyday anxiety. Mm. Maybe not to the point. Well, this is clearly uh, a book not for those that need to be hospitalized mm. and uh, severely medicated for their anxiety, which is which is a real a real thing. But it is that everyday anxiety that makes anxiety and depression, the number one mental illness across the globe. It's not that millions of people have that hospitalization level of anxiety. It's that more of us are feeling every day anxiety that starts to affect us and affects our work and affects our relationships. So I wanted to jump in and address that. Mm. That what are the approaches that we can use? And can I define um, what I mean by... Everybody knows what bad anxiety mm. is, right? But what is good anxiety? Yeah. And can you make aspects of anxiety into your superpower
0: that's interesting because what you're doing there and it's the first time i've ever seen it you're actually putting a positive spin on anxiety so it's not seen as this like all detrimental thing and if you've got it you have to go check yourself into a hospital i love that um and i didn't know it was the number one mental illness right now i thought across the world uh, across the globally okay so because i've always i've looked at studies of depression as well and Mm -hmm. i know that you know they could be linked so what's the um what's the changes in the brain like how does the brain get affected by anxiety yeah, or is it the other way around? Is it like the brain—it starts in the brain, and then you get anxious, like with it. Or does it start with anxiety, and then that disrupts the brain? Yeah,
1: that's a hard question to answer. But I would say that um, uh, the systems that are most affected are stress systems. And so um, mm. uh, cortisol system. Cortisol, so yeah. what what happens when mm. you when you start to get that worry of anxiety? You start to think about what what are the five reasons why I'm not going to make my rent this, this month? You you start to get stressed. You you have you have higher levels of cortisol. What does cortisol do to your brain? Frankly, cortisol shrinks your brain. Mm. And so uh, and I know this because uh, so many studies of uh, patients with PTSD. Many of them have anxiety and depression, but that's caused by some, some you know, uh, particular event. And um, with long-term stress and anxiety, those higher chronic levels of um, cortisol literally decrease the number of synaptic connections in key areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, in particular hippocampus, important for long-term memory, prefrontal Mm -hmm. cortex, important for decision-making, focusing your attention, working memory, all the things you need to kind of help order your life, which is why you get into these uh, either depression or... Or anxious states where your stress levels go up, and you can't seem to manage your day. How come I can't, you know, work well? It's because your prefrontal cortex is not working well enough, mm. and so that's one of the first and obvious effects mm. of um, of depression. You get uh, sorry, anxiety. You get higher levels of stress and um, uh, stress hormone. Mm. That uh, I'm focused on the brain, of course, but it has equally detrimental effects for your body. Mm. It causes ulcer problems. So Digestive issues—we all have noticed that you get a little stomach ache when you know you have too much anxiety. Um, it it causes cardiovascular problems in the long term, and so people with high levels of stress, including PTSD patients, t- can can develop heart issues mm. as well as digestive issues. So it's just a, a bad situation mm. for all major kind of <laughs> uh, systems of the body. It
0: would definitely interrupt sleep as well, which we know yes. we need adequate sleep for a, a beautifully functioning brain. Yes. Um, Okay. So a lot of your work has been spent researching memory and the brain. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what are the most fascinating findings that you have discovered in that area?
1: Yeah. So I think um, uh, one of the findings that I'm most proud of is uh, the one that I I jumped on when I first uh, became a faculty member at New New York University. So I wanted uh, to understand how a new memory is born. Mm. So I, I've always been fascinated with memory because when you think about it, um, two things. One, our long-term memories, and those are the kind dependent on the hippocampus, they really make up our personal histories. Mm. So imagine if you didn't have any of your long-term memories, you wouldn't be you anymore. Mm. So that's, that's critical for our, our individual identities. But second, um, we remember... Um, kind of the, the, the happiest and the saddest things in our lives despite the fact that they might have only happened over a few moments our first kiss for example, you can remember that for the rest of your life, possibly. The first time you hold your your um, son or daughter in your arms, for example, mm-hmm. only lasts a moment. But you will likely remember that for the rest of your life. So I was like, I, I really want to understand, because I know what's responsible. The hippocampus mm-hmm. is responsible for it. What is happening in the first stages of a memory as it's formed? Mm-hmm. And... Um, Can I tell whether it's going to be one that lasts or one that doesn't last? Mm. And so I was recording in um, uh, subjects, uh, recording the activity of individual brain cells um, as subjects were learning new associations. So it's equivalent of a name face association. Mm. Um, So names and faces that I'd never seen before and... um, I'd, I'd be told the name, Face, and then I'd be asked, is this, you know, is this Wen- Wendy or is this Louisa? Um, and, uh, and you have to, with trial and error, sometimes you get it wrong, but eventually you say, okay, I, I, I can tell the difference. Mm. And, um, and so I was recording, recording, see nothing. Like, I don't know, there's something supposed to be happening in the hippocampus I found no evidence. Until one day, I noticed that just as a subject was starting to learn something. It's like finally starting to get the answer correct that I heard this neuron in the hippocampus start to fire more. And I went, okay, mm. that's interesting. I wonder, and you know, I don't do all my analysis just listening to the cells. So you go back and you do a statistical analysis. And what I found was this amazing cell um, had no response when the um, subject didn't know the association. But right before the behavioral response showed, yes, I've learned this, mm. there was a huge increase in activity just to that learned association. And what I was listening to was actually the birth of a new memory. Oh, wow. It was a cell that had become incorporated into a new memory circuit. And after learning was specific for that learned association, and so that was basically the finding, finding that got me tenure at New York
0: University. Wow! Well, of course it did. So, <laughs> from that, from the birth of that cell, how do you know that that's going to actually last, be one of those lasting yeah, cells?
1: Yeah. So, what we were able to do is look um, the next day mm. to see whether uh, um, uh, first the memory was was there, um, and uh, it wasn't clear. It wasn't clear from our one day of training um, whether we could tell whether the memory was really going to be long-lasting, because we realized that the experiment that we needed to do was uh, keep recording in those same cells, not only over a single day, but over months and years. And actually, we can't do that. That was was too hard. So that question, we weren't able to answer, but Mm -hmm. what we were able to discover was the pattern of change in the hippocampus that underlies a new memory formation.
0: Oh my gosh, and that's what makes you, you know, who you are today. That's unbelievable. I um I've got some more questions for you because yeah. I think I could talk to you for the next I, I think yeah. 3 days. <laughs> um so with all this information that you have with the new book coming out with everything that you've done in your amazing TED talks, what would you say has been the most what what is the most impactful thing that we can be doing? every single day Mm. to have a better functioning brain.
1: Yeah. So I would say that my clear answer is that the most transformative thing that you can do for your brain today, right now, without spending one cent, is to do some aerobic activity. Wow. And that is because of all the things we 've already been talking about there 's immediate changes in, in um, uh, neurotransmitters there 's uh, um, spurts of um, uh, growth factors mm-hmm. and what we didn 't mention is those growth factors are key because they 're stimulating the birth of even more brand new hippocampal cells and these hippocampal cells that are born as when we we're adults. They work better than the hippocampal cells that have been there in our hippocampi since we were born. They are more excitable. Mm -hmm. They get incorporated into memory circuits like the ones that I just told you about that I was Mm -hmm. listening to Mm -hmm. more easily. And they make the hippocampus work better. Mm. So that is what we've seen and multiple studies in humans have seen is that long-term changes in your cardiorespiratory fitness, so doing workouts enough so that you're actually getting more fit Mm. uh, can significantly increase the size of your hippocampus Mm -hmm. and make your hippocampus work better. And that is so critical because... As we age, if we keep this up, so this mm. becomes a habit, hopefully, and you continue this and um as we age, the number one structure that gets attacked in aging, normal aging mm. is the hippocampus. Mm. Have you heard of the term uh, senior moment? Oh, sorry, I've had a senior moment i can't I can't remember that yeah, well. People say that for a reason. There's there's dysfunction in the hippocampus. It's normal. That happens with aging. You've Mm. seen it in your grandparents and your older relatives all the time. That is because the hippocampus is susceptible to aging. And so what we're doing by exercising, increasing those growth factors that are stimulating those new hippocampal cells to grow, is we are strengthening the Mm. hippocampus so that it'll take longer for aging Mm. to start to whittle away and decrease those synapses so that you start saying, oh, I have a senior moment all the time. Mm -hmm. No, you are protected. And also, um, while exercise isn't going to cure dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Um, They start with plaques and tangles, starts in the hippocampus, Mm. which is why the early signs of of, uh, Alzheimer's disease is memory loss. Um, So we're not going to cure the plaques and tangles at all. But what you do is make the hippocampus bigger and stronger. So it's going to take longer for those little plaques and tangles. If you have a little hippocampus, it will have smaller numbers of plaques and tangles to have an effect. But if you have a nice big fat one, hippocampus I mean uh, you um, uh, it'll take longer for that to have an effect and that will literally save millions if not billions of dollars in health if we can stave off even for six months or a year um, cognitive decline in the millions of people that are are entering that age range mm-hmm. that are that are starting to show um, age-related cognitive decline
0: it's so interesting that you say we could be saving billions of dollars mm-hmm. in health care just because yes. of you know just if we go out and exercise 20 minutes a day but then how you know what's your view on um nootropics you know Mm. you know know, that's a big buzzword right now people are looking at the next best nootropics so they can
1: increase their cognitive abilities do you see merit in them yeah i have to say i i know much more about nutrition and the studies about nutrition Mm. and um uh and brain function Mm -hmm. and um Yes, there are relationships between good, healthy diets. And of course, what's the buzzword? Mediterranean diet is good, and and it is good um, uh, for long-term. Does it have an immediate effect? If I eat that blueberry, am I going to suddenly have No. Um, And frankly, I, I haven't seen a lot of journal studies on nootropics. I've seen a lot of advertising about (laughs) nootropics. So I have a hard time actually giving a scientific view about it um, because some of them are are purporting to try and artificially raise um, some brain brain factors. That I don't believe because Mm -hmm. if you take it orally, it is not going into your brain.
0: Mm. Is just it's just not... getting digested and it's going di- into the... going the, yeah.
1: out yeah. your body. It's not helping your brain. So...
0: Wow. Interesting concept. Yeah. Last but not least, um, mm-hmm. can you please touch on how important it is to meditate? Because I know you, you do mm-hmm. tea meditation, but there's yes. a lot of other ones, you know, sitting in silence. Absolutely. And I've read a lot of studies to show that over, even after um, three months of intense, you know, 20 minutes a day yes. or 40 minutes a day, as TM suggests, your actual brain structure changes. Your brain actually thickens mm-hmm. and
1: yes. grows. Yes, yes. Um, um, and I know you, you know you speak a lot about it. So right, can you right. touch on that a bit? Absolutely. So um, this is this is such an interesting topic because um, I do study both of these things in my lab. Although we have many more studies on exercise than meditation, but it's always amazing to me that an activity where you are moving around as much as you can uh, can have some of the same brain effects as an activity where you sit as still as you can and you be as quiet as Mm. you can. But it's true. They both have de-stressing um, responses, uh, they both have mood boosting effects, and they both have um, uh, uh, positive effects on your ability to shift and focus your attention. Because many of these meditation techniques are about a focus of attention. Can you focus on your breath? And simply practicing that uh, improves your ability to focus your attention generally. In exercise, you're not necessarily doing that, but you actually stimulate um, probably through other kinds of um, growth factors, stimulate the functions of the prefrontal cortex, which is improving Mm. your focus and attention. So yes, uh, you see that. And I've read those studies showing increases in size of particular brain areas uh, with regular meditation. Um, I'm a a convert. I believe that long-term meditation, for example, the famous study of those Tibetan monks that had between 10,000 and 50,000 hours of meditation practice under their belts. They had... um They studied uh, the EEG patterns Mm. in those monks compared to control people that had uh, literally a week of meditation, you know, instruction. And um, even at baseline, when they were just sitting still, there were major significant differences in the EEG patterns, particularly in one wavelength, the gamma wavelength that's associated with higher cognitive function. Uh, And then when the monks were... And the controls were asked to meditate, then that gamma kind of went off the charts And um, that is very likely due to all of that meditation. Or, unfortunately, another interpretation is that people with this particular pattern tend to be attracted to the um, Tibetan monk lifestyle. Which could be a possibility, uh, which is why we need to do studies on everyday people mm. and give them maybe not 10,000 hours of, of training, but extensive uh, training. And some of those studies are starting to be done and showing showing um, changes in the mm. brains of people that are meditating.
0: Well, there you are, ladies and gentlemen. You don't need a prescription for meditation or exercise. I love that. Um, Wendy, where can we find out more about you?
1: Yes. Uh, please go to my website, wendysuzuki.com. Um, Uh, I have a second website associated with a new startup company that I am doing called BrainBody, and that's Mm. brainbody.io. And all of my um, newest books, all all the information that you would ever want about the company, about all of my events uh, can be found on those two websites.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for being part of this. You are welcome.